Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, joining uh, Major Owen and myself. I'm uh, Captain John Mullen. Now, of course, I'm a U.S. Army officer, and I thank you for this opportunity Christmas evening in the year of our Lord, 1861, to deliver a lecture before you. The Historical and Geographical Society of the Bitterroot, you compose. I'll speak to you about the Lewis and Clark expedition, the first exploration of the great Northwest by a follower of their landmarks. And I believe I have the right to claim to be their follower because just last year, I completed the construction of the 624 mile military wagon road from Fort Walla Walla at the head of navigation on the Columbia River to Fort Benton, head of navigation on the Missouri River. Simply put, I completed the missing land link in the Northwest Passage traversed at great peril by Lewis and Clark some 55 years earlier. Before I proceed, let me tell you a story about Fort Owen, this Rocky Mountain outpost you just heard about from Vic, and about my friend and host, Major John Owen. From Vic, we know of his busy life attending, planning, creating, and administering Fort Owen. That island of tranquility and Western culture and civilization in the heart of the Northwest. Yet despite his hectic travels and affairs, imagine with me a mental picture painted many years later by historian Paul Phillips of Major John Owen sitting in his library at night while the rest of the fort people were sound asleep with his pipe in hand, his dog at his feet, his glass of grog at his elbow, and Lingard's history of England propped on the table before him. He studies the story of history in the past, oblivious to the mighty history that he himself was creating as, as he lived. I've often used Major Owen's library during my time in the area in 1853-54. And of course, at that time, I was a topographic engineer with the Pacific Railway Survey under the leadership of the new governor of Washington Territory, Isaac I. Stevens. More recently, during the past two years, as my men worked to create the Mullen Road, I made further use of the library. In fact, I used John's library in preparing this talk this evening. And let me show you the very copy of that Lingard's History of England inscribed by Father Adrian Hoyken to Fort Owen, October 1854. Major John believed the four-volume Lingard was a gift to add to his library until four years later, in 1859, he was shocked to receive a letter 
from Father Hoiken asking for the return of those overdue Lingard books. Major John wrote back in January 1859, quote, I must acknowledge that I was not a little surprised when informed that you requested the return of Lingard's England. I must have been laboring under an egregious hallucination presented uh, under the egregious, egregious hallucination, for I certainly was under the impression that the work was by your <coughs> kindness presented to my meager collection, unquote. Major Owen continued, should you at any time have the disposition to dispose of Lingard's England, I'll pay you $25 for it, a pricely sum. Although Major John modestly called his library meager, that was not my own belief. And a year earlier, another friend of mine and an adventurer from Kentucky, John Mason Brown, while following the Mullen Road from Fort Benton to Fort Walla Walla, spent a week at Fort Owen and recorded his observations. Quote, I arrived at Fort Owen in the afternoon of August 7th, Major Owen at Walla Walla. The next day, lounged about the fort, which is well built of adobe, commodious, and very neatly kept. Owen's apartments, well carpeted and furnished. August 9th, busy all day reading and writing, killing the time partly with the violin and guitar that Owen's kept there. Monday, the 12th of August, Owen's Express from Walla Walla came in the afternoon with the news from the states of July 5th of 1861, of course. All very unhappy at the aspect of affairs as the Civil War had just begun. August 16th, Friday, read all day. Major Owens has a collection during his 11 years that he resided here, a very respectable number of standard books. Lieutenant Mullen's library is left here, my own library. He was talking about me. And many books belonging to Governor Isaac Stevens, unquote. But let us return to our main topic, and that, of course, is my friend Major John Mason Brown, after two adventurous trips up the Missouri River, uh, one going overland and returning down by way of California and overland, uh, Major John Mason Brown joined the Union Army, although his family had slaves and were from the slaveholding side of, of Kentucky, and he fought throughout the Civil War many times writing and remembering about his trip to the upper Missouri's in 1861-62. So let's return to Lewis and Clark, our principal topic for today. Now, when Major John and I first talked about my lecture, I asked for the entire evening to discuss in some depth the subject at hand. Well, you know old John, dancing and partying was so much more to his liking than any sort of lecture so he insisted that I complete the entire story in just 30 minutes. And I'm sure he'll cut me off if I go a minute past that deadline. You all know the holiday celebrations at Fort Owen were always special. We don't have Major Owen's journal for 1861 
1862, I'm sorry, for January 1862, but the year previous to this, New Year's Day of 1861, Major Owen rhapsodized, quote, the Christmas week has passed and we wind up the holidays with a party tonight. In fact, it's been nothing but dancing and feasting for the past 10 days. Major Blake, or Mr. Blake, Irvin, and Harris have reflected much credit on themselves for the very liberal manner in which they contributed to the comforts and amusements of the stranger guests. In fact, it was a time long to be remembered in the Rocky Mountains. Our grandchildren will have, have it handed down to them by their ancestors. Now this is the first lecture ever delivered within the boundaries of later Montana, and it related to that first exploration ever made in the great Northwest between the Mississippi and the Pacific Ocean, the Lewis and Clark expedition. In preparing to construct my road, I studied the writings and landmarks of the old pathfinders. Might I also mention that proceeds from this event tonight are going to aid an orphan charity in the Oregon and Washington territories. So let me begin my all too short lecture. Ladies and gentlemen, I have deemed this evening might be appropriately spent in rehearsing the principal events and incidents, the object and results of the first and greatest exploration that's ever taken place across the American continent, that is the Lewis and Clark expedition. <clears throat> I wish I had time to weave highlights of the expedition into the westward dreams of President Thomas Jefferson as he acquired Louisiana territory. I'd paint the exploration of Lewis and Clark into the larger picture that includes my own path-breaking wagon road construction on the onset of the Civil War. But alas, I have time simply to highlight a few events along the way. What memories arise, what associations spring up at the very mention of these noble men? What schoolboys not familiar with the movements of such bold pioneers toward our Western Ocean? Who within the sound of my voice has not read <clears throat> and reread with pleasure the simple and unpretending narrative of their long, tiresome, marvelous journeyings, their hairbreadth escapes? and lives fraught with dangers and privations. The date and circumstances attending the starting of the expedition are worthy of a special mention, showing as they do even at the beginning of the present 19th century, the disposition of our government was to explore new and far distant regions at any cost, peril, or danger. This was a period when we had but recently emerged from colonial status when our settlements were principally confined to the eastern slopes of the Alleghenies and when the perils of a western frontier life at that day can be read in the present histories of Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, and Illinois. The bands of roving Indian tribes still occupied the vast regions, regions from the foot of the Allegheny Mountains to the summit of the Rocky Range, and when their light bark canoes alone disturbed the still waters of the great Mississippi, Missouri, and Ohio rivers. This was a period when the axeman stroke was for the first time heard in the great primeval forests of the West, 
and when the daily incidents and enactments in the lives of Daniel Boone, George Rogers Clark, and the frontiersmen of that day formed equally the topics of daily conversation and gossip in cabinet sessions while grave affairs of state were being discussed. <clears throat> this was a period when France and Great Britain, equal with ourselves, were joint claimants to the vast domain extending from the Mississippi onwards to the setting sun, and only limited by the bold waters of the Pacific on the west. This was a period when the great geographical and commercial center of our nation, St. Louis, the starting point of the expedition, was the site of a small French village of rude frame tenements, and when its merchants were content with a barter of whiskey and powder for furs and peltries. This was a period when the mind and affairs of our citizens were riveted upon home and the fireside where had set their fathers and grandfathers before them. This was a period when the wild power of steam had not been caught and harnessed it to wheels and shafts and spindles of a commercial and manufacturing world. And when the electric pulse that by its ceaseless beatings was to add a new life to a torpid world still lay slumbering in the womb of the future. It was a period when the world's history as this, therefore, in which destiny had determined that the broad and unknown region lying between the Alleghenies and the Pacific should be explored by the thousands of industrious citizens and aliens whose hands still clung to their alders at home and from whose feet had never fallen the dust of their own homesteads. Before the session of Louisiana to the United States by France in 1803, truly nothing was known of this great interior whence flow the Missouri, Mississippi, and Columbia, the three great artilleries, arteries of our country. No bold geographer had, had as yet threaded the long and tortuous windings of the two former and through speculation had often for years asserted that a great river rose in the great rocky range and poured its tribute toward the western ocean, and which explorers at that day styled the great river San Roque. It was now for the first time authentically proclaimed to the world that our majestic Columbia existed. The sagacious Jefferson, who was then president of the United States, had determined in his own mind that the value of such a treasure should not only be secured to us, but should also be appreciated by us making known to the world through the effort and labors of American exploration the extent, character, and resources of that vast region watered by the great inland sea. The first and greatest object with him was to secure the right, secure it to us by a right and title that was indisputable, not only for ourselves, but against all foreign nations who might de desire to establish colonies in juxtaposition to our own territorial possession. Even before the, cessation, the session was full and complete, he sent a special message to Congress on January 18th of 1803, recommending that steps prompt and immediate be taken by our government to secure to us the knowledge of the extent and resources of this acquisition, and suggested the fitting out of a well-equipped and well-organized expedition 
whose labors should only end when they reached the mouth of the great Columbia River, the source of which it was their duty to explore. These suggestions were promptly endorsed and acted on, and full authority was given to the president to hasten to the field a well-armed and scientific expedition to make known throughout its length and breadth the value of the territory of Louisiana and the country to its west. While we simply haven't time to properly discuss the brave commanders, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, their men, their departure on May 15, 1804 from St. Louis, the winter they spent at the Mandan village in the Dakotas, their fateful judgment <clears throat> at Decision Point near Fort Benton, or the arduous portage around the falls of the Missouri. But as they passed the three forks of the Missouri and approached the challenges of land movement through the territory of the mountain snakes, some call the Shoshones, let us pick up the fateful story. They had now reached the homes of the mountain snakes, a tribe of Indians as treacherous then as now, and with whom it became necessary to treat and to parley relative to their onward movements. They had with them a man by the name of Charbonneau, <clears throat> whose wife, Sacagawea, was a snake and captured many years before by the Sioux of the Prairies. Lewis and Clark feared that these mountain tribes, suspicious and doubtful of the objects of their movement, would be but illy disposed to assist them in their present emergency. And had it not been an accident as fortunate as strange, I verily believe that their labors here and there might have been brought to a most fatal termination and their expedition similarly ended. As it was, the Indians on learning of the presence of Lewis and Clark in their country kept shy and aloof, and every hilltop became a telegraph signal to warn Indians for miles around of a new era and a new enemy in their nation's history. <clears throat> it was only a resort to a stratagem such as a long and intimate knowledge of Indian character suggested that they were enabled to converse with them at all, and upon Charbonneau and his wife now rested all the hopes of procuring horses and an outfit from these Indians. Charbonneau's wife, who for years absence had been long regarded as lost and, num and numbered with the dead, was no less than the sister of the principal chief of the tribe, and instead of the enemies, he found Lewis and Clark friends and ransomers of his sister, who after the first tears of joy shed at so unexpected a meeting had been dried, was not tardy in narrating the details and objects and anticipated results of this movement in their midst. It was a labor of minor difficulty, therefore, for Lewis and Clark to lay before the chief their wants and requests, and which, when once known, were willingly and cheerfully acquiesced in. Then, once more equipped and mounted on the best horses of the country, and with their small package of barter, still smaller packages of a scanty supply, having left, left many caches along the way for their return trip, they abandoned their boats and the companions of their long pilgrimage and once more were on the quest for the sources of the Columbia. Again to meet Major 
Owen's deadline and Kate's deadline. <laughs> We're forced to leave unspoken the arduous mountain passage, although I must note there's no doubt in my mind that Lewis and Clark crossed by the most difficult section of terrain. We'll breeze by their winter on the coast in 1805-1806, and their return across the Bitterroot Mountains in June of 1806, their explorations of the Marias and Yellowstone rivers, and their rapid return to St. Louis. But I will take just a moment to lament the lack of practical steps taken by our government till many years later to maintain the critical claim to the Northwest that the expedition set the stage for. And I'll but briefly lament the fact that the reports of the exploration of Lewis and Clark were not even published until 1814, and even then by private parties. I'm forced to pass by also the half-century aftermath of the exploration with the development of the fur trade and the beginnings of Western exploitation. Let me conclude by saying, would that another Jefferson would arise to guide the helm of our noble ship of state, now fast wending toward the strands of disunion. And with his full knowledge of the direction taken by the political storms that beat us, guide us into the haven of harmony and unity of sentiment and sympathy of action. It's most gratifying, however, to the lover of the liberal, the noble, and national to read at the present day the record of our statesmen of a half century since when this exploration was had. No geographical and section lines divided in twain, either their legislation or their views. But we find Virginia's Jefferson at the head and front to explore and make known to us the broad expanse of Northern Territory, which time should carve into a new Confederacy, not for the North, not for the South, but for our nation's advancement and propensity. It was the spirit of this work that they initiated, carried on, and brought to a successful completion. Then will the objects and ends of the first exploration of our great interior country be seen and appreciated, and history then, I trust, be too willing and will accord full need of praise in the name and memory of Lewis and Clark. Thank you.